As we all face tough challenges with the COVID-19 coronavirus pandemic, NASCA is still working in providing educational material for our members, including podcasts. Like all of you, I am practicing social and physical distancing as well. This podcast was a recorded interview conducted in December of 2019 before the crisis. Our podcast is a monthly podcast, and we had always planned to release this episode as our April 2020 episode. On behalf of the Executive Board of NASCA, please stay safe and stay healthy. We will get through this together. Welcome to the official podcast of NASCA, the National Association of State-Controlled Substance Authorities. Here you will find conversations, lectures, and thoughts on various topics involving controlled substances. Leading experts sharing their knowledge and ideas on today's medications, dangerous drugs, and substance abuse. NASCA is an association of state government agencies, along with various stakeholders, who oversee controlled substances. Through this association, we work together to make our country, our world, a safer place. On this episode, we are discussing Medicated Assisted Treatment, or MAT. Our guest is Jennifer Esper of the Esper Treatment Center in Erie, Pennsylvania. Her agency has been treating people with opioid use disorder for nearly 20 years. In 2016, Pennsylvania Governor Tom Wolf designated the Esper Treatment Center as a center of excellence as it was one of the two highest performing treatment facilities in Pennsylvania. In addition, Jennifer travels Pennsylvania to speak about opioid use disorder and how her clinic approaches medicated assisted treatment in a structured format in the hopes of educating people about the disease of addiction, ways to engage treatment, and entering recovery. For this podcast, I traveled to the Esper Treatment Center in Erie, Pennsylvania, where she shared her nearly 20 years of experience with personal insight from the front lines of this problem. In our first segment, we discuss a typical entry into her program, polydrug use, and something called methadonia. I'm here at the Esper Clinic with Jennifer Esper, who is the director and owner of the Esper Treatment Center. Thank you for sitting down with me and doing the podcast. Thank you for asking me to do the podcast with you. Let me ask you, just if you can just describe uh, what the Esper Treatment Center is and what you guys do there. Absolutely. So the Esper Treatment Center is a facility located in Erie, Pennsylvania, and we specialize in medication-assisted treatment for the use or when people use or misuse opiates. Opiates meaning Oxycontin, Vicodin, but more likely and more prevalent nowadays, heroin, fentanyl, things of that nature. So any sort of opiate or opioid, be it natural or synthetic, that's what we do at the Esper Treatment Center. We dispense medications, considered medication-assisted treatment to help that patient enter recovery to combat or fight their opioid use disorder. What does treatment look like at the, uh, like, what does somebody, what do they do when they come to your, or how do they come to your facility to receive treatment? So right out of the gate, what normally happens, people have to call my facility. They want to enroll in treatment. They need help. So what we do initially is we we have to screen every single patient. Obviously, it's a safety concern. And we also have to deem if each patient is appropriate for the program. And by appropriate, I mean if you're using one Vicodin once a day for six months, you're not appropriate for the program. 
And the reason why you're not appropriate for the program is because that's not considered out-of-control use, number one. Per the state regulations and the federal regulations, you have to be addicted to opiates for one year, documented use. And sometimes people just are not appropriate for the program. So we initially screen every patient. And what we do is we have them come in. We have an intake worker. He asks several, several, several questions. We also delve into significantly their drug history. When did they start using drugs? What drugs do they use? How frequently do they use? When did they last use? How much are they spending on drugs? Things of that nature. Do they present with multiple drugs? All the time. How Uh, does that affect recovery and treatment? 19 years ago when people were coming into the facility, they were just addicted to OxyContin. That's it. They didn't use anything else. They didn't report anything else. Even predicated on their urine drug screens, they weren't using anything else. But now let's fast forward or actually rewind six or seven years ago. Every single person that does come into my facility, and I say every single, there there may be a, a small percentage of people, but everybody is a polysubstance abuser, meaning they use several pharmaceuticals legally or illicitly. And the reason, again, I, well, I don't know why everybody's a polysubstance user, but that's been the norm for, for many, many years now. And the what reason- What do you think changed? What do you think changed from using a specific drug of choice to being a polydrug user? I think people just want to get really high, really quick. It doesn't matter what it is, um, how they do it, how they get it, upper, downer, heroin, coke, and they just- use. They use everything. Garbage can. They'll use anything. Does this have anything to do with the tightening of regulations or the fact that doctors are prescribing less in terms of pills? A lot of patients that come in, they've actually started using and experimenting with drugs at a far younger age than they did 18 years ago. They have more exposure to things. They have the social media and all of the stuff that you can get on the internet. That stuff doesn't help either. That's you know, that's a major contributor to all of this. When people come in and they want to seek medication-assisted treatment, when we ask these questions and we have to ask, again, what are you being prescribed, this, that, and the other thing, there are several pharmaceuticals out there that do interact with medication-assisted treatment. And if that is the case, then we either have to reach out to the physician that is writing the prescriptions for this person that is seeking treatment. Or what we will do if we feel as though that person is unsafe, we will always make referrals to other programs, uh, perhaps some inpatient Give me an example. Pharmaceuticals might interact with the medicated-assisted treatment. Okay, so pharmaceuticals that interact, benzodiazepines, A1A, that's number one. There is a humongous safety concern because you have a benzovalium, Ativan, Xanax, Clonopin is huge. So if you have someone that is on those pharmaceuticals, there is definitely an interaction with medication-assisted treatment with methadone and buprenorphine. In what way? Well, so the benzos and the methadone or buprenorphine, it's CNS depressant, even at small therapeutic doses of a benzodiazepine, interacting with the buprenorphine, it can cause death. Even at a small dose, there's an interaction with benzos and buprenorphine. Does it happen to everybody? No, of course not, but it's a safety concern. When patients combine them, why are they combining? Well, let me rewind real quick. So back before we started doing methadone, or I'm sorry, buprenorphine, there was something called methadonia. And that is when you take your methadone, 
and you time it exactly perfectly and you take a benzodiazepine in conjunction with your methadone, you get very, very, very high. And patients like that. And they call it methadonia. Now, this was before buprenorphine. So, yeah, they just they just want to get high. So they learned how to combine the drugs so they can get a better effect from it, is what you're saying, right? I mean, they're scientific with it. Wow. They really are. Um, so what we do at, at my facility, and I'm not speaking for every other facility. I, I, I'm only coming from my own frame of reference. When we have a person seeking treatment, and let's say they are being prescribed benzodiazepines by a physician, number one, benzodiazepines are nothing for the long term. They should really be used in acute situations. But we have patients that have been maintained on benzos for 25 years for their anxiety. So if someone does come in, if they're being prescribed a benzodiazepine, let's say it comes from their family practitioner. We don't allow that because number one, if you've had anxiety for 25 years, you might want to visit a psychiatrist. You might need to be put on something else. You might need some coping skills. You might need some tools to deal with your anxiety. So Again, if you're coming into the facility and you're being prescribed benzodiazepines before you are admitted to the facility, we need to notify your family practitioner and we need to set you up with an appointment with a psychiatrist. Psychiatrists obviously are more or well-versed in dealing with anxiety and all the other pharmaceuticals that go along with it. So if you do want to become a patient at the Esper Treatment Center, if you are going to maintain a script of benzodiazepines, it has to come from a psychiatrist not a family practitioner. You don't treat anything other than opioid use disorder. So it's not going to be, for example, stimulants. How do you deal with a patient who presents that has an addiction to cocaine or some of the other drugs? Well, as far as the polysubstance use, um, we only deal with opioid use disorder. However, again, everybody's a polysubstance user. So when that patient is admitted, um, obviously everybody gets a counselor. You have to engage in your counseling. You have to engage in treatment. When those situations present itself, that is where your counseling comes into it. That's where your treatment comes into it. That's where you have to do your work towards your recovery. You have to go to AA or NA meetings. You have to get a sponsor. You have to engage in treatment. Medication-assisted treatment is not the magic bullet. It is not. The program that you presented at NASCO, and it was on your slide, I, I had read it, where you said the medication was a small part of the recovery process. So what's the rest of the recovery process? The rest of the recovery process is dealing with helping the patient. A lot of it is a trauma-based. How did they come to use opiates? How did they come addicted to opiates? Uh, a lot of it is trauma. Sometimes, honestly, it could be just as I had a back surgery and I got addicted to opiates, and then they started engaging in the addictive behavior. But um, that's where your therapy comes in. That's where your counseling comes in. All patients are seen four hours a month. The state regulation is 2.5 hours a month. But that is not, when you have someone that is injecting heroin every two hours, 2.5 hours a month is not cutting the mustard. You really need to see that person one hour a week. You have to build a rapport with patients. You have to do a root cause analysis, figure out what is going on, if need be, you know, we always make referrals to other agencies. A lot of it, if say if you were molested growing up, things of that nature, that's a lot of trauma. We make referrals. We, the medication part is a very small portion of it. So they come in every day? Every single day. And then they go to counseling once a week? Correct. And that lasts, and how long does that, does the recovery process last for a typical patient? 
Well, um, the great thing about our program is we, if you're coming into our program, not only are we going to help you, but we expect a lot from you as well. We're big on, and I don't want to say holding the patient accountable. You get out of it what you put into it. Simply stated, does everybody want recovery? Does everybody want? No, a lot of people don't. And I'm fine with that too. The patient has to come in the person seeking treatment. They have to scratch the surface of their own recovery. They have to, they have to do the work too. We can only take them so far. You can lead a horse to water. As far as how long does that process take, everybody's on their own journey. There's no magic number. Hey, two years, you're cured. It's nothing like that. It's what you put into it is what you're going to get out of it. So a lot of people believe that, why don't you just quit? Can right. you talk about that? This is oh, absolutely. So they can't. Do you not think that these people want to continue doing what they do? They don't I mean, want to. Not everybody to. wants to be a heroin Not addict. everybody. No, no. They absolutely don't. Um, don't you think when people have that, that harsh judgment, don't you think these people want to stop? Do you think that they really like going out and having to prostitute themselves or rob, do really awful things to secure drugs? They don't want to, but they can't. They're not able to. They feel like they're dying every two hours. Yeah, describe why. You truly think, and when your limbic system is activated, you truly think you're going to die. Fight or flight, right? So when you are in your fight or flight way of thinking every two to three hours, you're going to do what you have to do to make yourself feel like you're not dying. Is that how long it takes for the average person who uses heroin and only lasts about two hours? Yeah, I mean, and again, everything is different, right? So as far as the integrity of the pharmaceutical, you could not go into withdrawal until three hours or maybe four hours. Maybe you go into withdrawal after an hour. Um, Again, that's all predicated on the composition, I suppose, of the heroin and what it's cut with, how pure it is, this, that, and the other thing. Um, And that's on the chemical, chemistry, pharmaceutical end. So when you say every two hours, you're speaking on an average? Yeah, on average, correct. If you were to ask anybody that shoots heroin, what does it feel like when you go through withdrawal? They feel like they're going to die. What are some of the withdrawal symptoms that they have? Oh, gosh, stomach cramps. They'll yawn. Their eyes are watering. They're tearing up. Their nose is running. They're pooping, you know, again, vomiting, stuff like that. It just, and again, I've seen hundreds of people. It's not pleasant. Um, so when you think that you're going to die, you have to do whatever you have to do to get the stuff that is going to make you feel like you're not going to die. We mentioned a moment ago about chemistry, about drug chemistry, right? Mm-hmm. And we know that there's a lot of drugs that are not controlled, that are not considered controlled substances, mm-hmm. but are either maybe require prescription or do not, but they actually combine them. And part of that is, as I've been told, is that patients want to avoid withdrawal. Is that what you hear in your facilities that you see when they combine certain drugs? Uh, such as gabapentin, maybe combine that with a benzo to increase the effect so that they can alleviate those withdrawal symptoms. What's the reasoning? Well, number one, um, it just takes one person to spread a rumor or say, hey, look, I got some gabapentin and I ate a benzo with it and I got really, really high. So when people start hearing that, everybody wants that, right? Now, gabapentin is a non-opiate and it's for phantom pain, the indications, uh, phantom pain, if you will, neuropathy, stuff like that. It's actually a great pharmaceutical. So when you take large amounts of gabapentin, you get really high. And then when you take a benzo on top of that, guess what? You get really high. Or if you're lucky enough, you don't get dead after that combination because what's been happening, and again, so gabapentin can be 
written out 300 milligrams, right? You have a family practitioner or a physician who knows nothing that gabapentin can be abused, right? Because when you tell physicians this, they're just blown away. But you have somebody that says, let's say they are being prescribed 300 milligrams of gabapentin three times a day. That's 900 milligrams. But let's say that that person takes 2,700 milligrams and shoots it up and gets really, really high. And then they add a benzodiazepine on top of that. Again, if they don't get dead, they're going to get really, really high. But again, it's a lot of the polysubstance use and the mixing of pharmaceuticals and stuff like that. It's word of mouth. It's rumor. It's people experimenting, stuff like that. And that's a lot Are they doing too. it to avoid withdrawal? Are they doing it to get the... The euphoria. The, the gabapentin and the benzos won't help. In a manner of speaking, it won't placate or quell your withdrawal symptoms. It might make them a little more tolerable because, again, you're gorked out, right? But um, no, when people heard about the gabapentin, wow, it was rapid fire. All right, let me take a, a quick break, and when we come back, we'll continue our discussion. Before we continue our discussion, I want to take a quick break to inform our listeners about NASCA. The National Association of State-Controlled Substance Authorities is a nonprofit that consists of regular members and associate members. Regular members are from various state governmental agencies who have some authority over controlled substances. Agencies like state-controlled substance authorities, board of pharmacies, health departments, state attorneys general, or PDMP administrators. Associate members are individuals and businesses like pharmaceutical manufacturers, distributors, retail pharmacies, tech and data companies, and others. Their sponsorship provides funding that keeps NASCA operating and allows us to provide educational opportunities like webinars, podcasts, and the annual training conference. NASCA has an executive committee that leads the association. The executive committee is elected by the regular membership and only regular members are eligible to serve on the executive committee. In addition to the executive committee, we also have other committees where both regular and associate members work together. You can learn more about NASCA, its committees and educational opportunities by visiting our website at nasca.org. If you would like to know how to join NASCA or become a sponsor, please visit our website, nascsa.org. That's nascsa.org. Getting back to our discussion with Jennifer Esper of the Esper Treatment Center, I started by asking her about the danger of suddenly quitting the use of drugs by patients as well as others. Good news. Not one person has died from an opioid withdrawal or an opiate withdrawal or anything like that. No one has died, so that's amazing news. It feels like you're going to die, from what I've been told. And again, just visibly seeing my patients prior to admission, you know, they, it's not good. But there are two that if you were to quit cold turkey, if you don't die, that's awesome. But you could potentially die from it. So alcohol and benzodiazepines. So benzos are the pill form of alcohol. If you know any hardcore alcoholics, and let's say that hardcore alcoholic goes to the doctor and says, hey doc, I know I've been a hardcore alky for 30 plus years, but today's the last day. I'm done. If the physician is a good physician, they're going to say, under no circumstances are you going to quit cold turkey 
You need to check yourself into a hospital detox and be monitored. So there's two withdrawals that could potentially kill you, alcohol, benzodiazepines. When you're withdrawing off of those pharmaceuticals, if, if you're not being medically managed in a, in a detox, a medical detox setting, what could happen? You can have a grand mal seizure and die. A whole host of things can happen, but the only two withdrawals that could potentially kill you alcohol, and benzodiazepines. And when you say the benzodiazepines and being addicted to it, we're not just talking about someone that's taking, what are you talking about? When you, what would be the threshold? If that person's taking one pill at night to sleep and they're taking it over 25 years, I mean, dependent upon, too, what the milligram is, quick cold turkey, they would get jammed up. The same thing with the alcohol. If you have, you know, your hardcore alcoholics, you know, any doctor's dude, do not quit drinking. We need to get you to a hospital and we need to medically manage your withdrawal. What are some of the current drug trends that your patients are talking about now? Well, gabapentin is always being combined with something, with whatever, for whatever reason they love it. They do. And that's new. That's, that's probably three years. It's not an opioid? It's a non-opiate. It is a non-opiate. So why are they combining it? They get real high. Um, a lot of them in combination with, say, if they're on an atypical for some sort of mental health disorder. Um, sometimes they're being found unresponsive because you're mixing an atypical with a very, very high dose of gabapentin. That person may or may not be prescribed. They can die. Aside from that, I mean, methamphetamine is now making a humongous comeback as far as the polysubstance use. The fentanyl, they're putting the fentanyl in everything. They're putting fentanyl in cocaine. They're putting the fentanyl in marijuana. They're putting whatever they can put into whatever they can get. This is new for me, too. Um, the doxapen is an old-school antidepressant, but anything can be written off-label. So a lot of them are using, a lot of physicians may write doxapen for sleep at a higher dose than just, you know, a normal antidepressant dose. The reason why the doxapen, um, the doxapen is older. There's newer, cleaner antidepressants out on the market. But again, um, you can write anything. Any physician can write anything for anything. It doesn't have to be absolutely indicated. They write stuff off-label all the time. Uh, with the doxapen, in the high doses, it can interact and, again, cause death. Now, how about some of the other drugs like promethazine, phenergan? So the phenergan, um, people get high off of phenergan. Now, phenergan is an anti-emetic. You know, it's designed to treat nausea, vomiting, stuff like that. Um, there is a component something within that compound that when you take more than what you're supposed to, you will get high. You know, the rap stars, the promethazine with codeine, they call it lean, scissor, double cup, dirty spray. I mean, you know, they make rap songs and videos about it. So, and just to piggyback, you know, a lot of the substances or things that are available at, let's say, Country Fair, which is just like a mini mart or a gas station. Um, there's things that are absolutely sold at those places. There's a it's called Kratom, K-R-A-T-O-M. People are buying that in droves. When you take a lot of Kratom, you get very, very high. How does that happen in your facility? Are they telling you they're taking Kratom because it's not a controlled substance? No. It's not regulated by the FDA. The DEA doesn't have it scheduled. No. Individuals um, can just Correct. They think that if anywhere. they can just purchase it at Country Fair, that it's cool for them to take. But it's not because Kratom, again, has opioid properties to it. And the problem with the kratom, too, they're always changing the chemical composition of kratom. So let's say I were to do a urine drug screen, and let's say I tested for kratom. 
All they would have to do, some brilliant chemist, was change one little molecule or one little alcohol molecule or COOH, and the kratom is not detectable anymore. It's the same thing with the bath salts. It's the same thing with the K2. All of these kind of designer drugs, these designer stimulants and stuff like that, they're excruciatingly dangerous. But the problem is, too, as soon as one of the brilliant chemists changes something, then it becomes undetectable. You and I have discussed in the past about gaps that are in the system that help you and really help the patients in trying to prevent diversion and other issues. So let's just talk about that for a minute. So for example, do you have access or are you able to access the PDMP to see when a patient that presents to you for treatment is getting medications from somebody else? Absolutely. So all the physicians that work at the Esper Treatment Center, they're all registered with the PDMP. We check every single patient prior to admission, and we check each patient once a month, minimally. Uh, A lot of the patients, you know, they'll self-report, hey, you know, I have a prescription for this, that, and the other thing. Um, But sometimes they don't always report. So it's incumbent upon us to keep the patient and the community safe. So we do check the PDMP a lot. And the reason behind that, again, is to make sure that, number one, we're not we want to keep the patient safe, especially when you're new to recovery, things of that nature. There, again, are some pharmaceuticals that are pretty benign in a manner of speaking, but there could be an interaction with the methadone uh, or the buprenorphine. So we have to do our due diligence and check the PDMP. When a patient does get enrolled into our facility, we reach out to the physicians to notify them that their patient is seeking treatment for their opioid use disorder. Please do not write any opiates, benzos, and a whole host of other pharmaceuticals to help this patient engage in recovery. Um, Sometimes it goes over really well, but sometimes it doesn't. So with the physician that we're reaching out to. On the PDMP, something like gabapentin is not going to show up because it's not a controlled substance in Pennsylvania, so you're not going to see that. And that's when you have to reach out to the physician to make sure that if they are prescribing that, if the patient hasn't disclosed that. If, Something of that nature? If we do have a patient that does have a script for gabapentin, and we can test for gabapentin as well, they have to get a referral to pain management because obviously they're on gabapentin for some sort of pain. Again, if you want to be on gabapentin, you cannot get it from your family practitioner. You need to go to a pain specialist. Maybe they have something different for you to try, things of that nature. Now, that's your rules, though. Correct. That's, that's my rules. That's not necessarily treatment center's rules. They correct. Could. We're pretty we're strict. Um, we always have been. And again, it's patient safety. That's just how we've always done it. We talked about the government standards or the state regulations regarding how you have to handle patients. So we are bound by federal regulations, state regulations, county regulations. We also have an accrediting body. We're accredited by CARF, um, and all narcotic treatment programs have to be accredited. So we are always operating under four different set of rules. But the good news is we're so strict anyways, we kind of We've always done it. Uh, we always have to err on the side that is more restrictive, and we are more restrictive than the most restrictive regulations. So, let's talk uh, for a minute about Suboxone. The gaps there that you and I have discussed in the past regarding Suboxone treatment at other facilities, patients that might present to you for methadone. 
So when buprenorphine is written on the outpatient level, they call it an OBOT, office-based opioid treatment. The physician that is wavered to prescribe buprenorphine can hand a patient a prescription for one month and just expect them to take it responsibly. So it's giving an alcoholic a 30-pack of beer and telling them to just drink one a day, buddy. That is on the outpatient level. But you don't do that. We don't do that. So we dispense buprenorphine daily. But how do you deal with a patient who presents for treatment at your facility for methadone, for example? How do you know that they're not getting Suboxone from another treatment facility? Well, we check the PDMP exhaustedly. But the PDMP isn't going to tell you if, if it is dispensed directly by that facility. If it's being written by a physician that is wavered, just a regular physician, it will show up on the PDMP. Yes, it, it, Correct. as long as it is dispensed by a pharmacy, um, but if it's dispensed by a treatment facility or dispensed by a Suboxone clinic, it's not going to show up. So we're the only, okay, so as far as treatment and what goes on the PDMP, so if a patient is enrolled in my facility for methadone or buprenorphine, that will not show up on the PDMP because I'm considered treatment. But if you go to a Suboxone clinic where they're writing it in the office-based that will show up on the PDMP because 99% of the time, you know, it's being paid for by the physical health plan and an office-based opioid treatment, they're not considered treatment in a manner of speaking. They're not held to the same confidentiality rules that I'm being held by. So they're not going to dispense directly from the practice. Correct. They go to the pharmacy. They hand a prescription for 30 days. When it gets filled at the pharmacy, then it's entered into the PDMP. So you see that, but what about the patients who go to another treatment facility? Is there any direct connect with within your industry where you all of you can know that someone... Well, yeah. So we have these things, uh, they're called dual enrollment forms. So before any patient is admitted into our facility, we check within a 120-mile radius to see if they're enrolled in treatment at another facility that we're not aware of. Or has this person in the past, been enrolled in your facility. We also do that, too, for the buprenorphine providers because we had an incident, I think it was last year. A gentleman was coming to my facility for buprenorphine, but then he went down the street to an office-based practitioner for more buprenorphine, got a prescription, and we found out the next day on the PDMP that he's getting more buprenorphine from an office-based physician. So obviously that guy is double dipping. And when we did send those dual enrollment forms out, um, those facilities did not send us any information back, nor do they ever. So that's another huge gap. But And that's something that could be changed by SAMHSA regulations or how would, how could we um, Yeah, absolutely. Change? I mean, how could, how could we effect, effectively change it? They need to come up with some regulations or standards governing these buprenorphine clinics, hold them to a higher standard, make sure that they're not exposing the community to diverted prescriptions that they're writing. Thank you, Jennifer, for sitting down with me. I appreciate and I enjoyed our conversation. Hopefully uh, our members and everyone else will get something out of this. It's always a pleasure. And again, if anybody has any questions, if you have any or anything to add, or if you want to talk about what you're noticing in your neck of the woods, I absolutely would love it if you would contact me. Thank you for joining me. I'm your host, Alan McGill, and on behalf of the Executive Board of NASCA and our Education Committee, I want to thank Jennifer Esper, CEO of the Esper Treatment Center in Erie, Pennsylvania, for her insights in opioid use disorder and Medicaid-assisted treatment. 
I also want to thank our platinum, gold, and silver sponsors. Without them, we could not provide educational opportunities such as this podcast. You can find all of our episodes for free at Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your podcasts. The music for this podcast provided by Joseph McDade. If you like Joe's music, please visit josephmcdade.com and you can support Joe on Patreon. NASCA also invites you to join us at our annual training conference where we educate through networking, exchange of ideas, and by experiencing some of the best speakers on current topics and trends involving controlled substances. To learn more about NASCA, our conferences and educational programs, visit our website, nascsa.org. I hope you learned something and moved forward. Please join us again on our next podcast.